Okay, there we go. There we go. All right. Well, welcome to Love Chapel Hill, where our name is our mission to love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. Uh, not only is love our name and our mission, but this Sunday, love is also the Advent candle that we're, we've lit together, uh, as uh, our friends have done for us this morning. And when we light the candle of love, we, re- we remember that our God is a God who is love, who puts on human flesh. Scripture says, God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, right? So this is, we have all this that we're uh, kind, of, kind of thinking about. Now, if, if you notice that my voice is a little bit raspy this morning, it's because it is, uh, such is life, uh, but we're going to try to make it through together. I think, I think I'm a little bit more understandable than I was yesterday, so that's always a plus. Uh, but nevertheless, if you would turn to me this morning, we're going to immerse ourselves in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. Uh, so if you want to pull out your Bibles, whether it's paper, digital, or maybe you just have it all memorized, you want to like flip through the mental pages, that's all fine. So if you were with us in person or online last week, you would remember that Justin guided us excellently excellently through the genealogy of Jesus in the first 17 verses of Matthew. So this week we want to continue uh, looking at the coming of the king, right? So last week we we got uh, the genealogy that basically said, all right, it's happening, it's coming, here's how all this is going to work out, and it works out so poetically if you're looking at the structure of the 14 generations and the 14 generations and the other set, right? It's all kind of coming up to this moment of perfection, uh, so in true fashion, one does not simply compose a message on the coming of the king without listening to a much-beloved soundtrack on the returning of another king. So uh, for this message, I just want to dedicate it to uh, Howard Shore. A uh, special shout-out uh, for his riveting compositions. If you don't catch what I'm stepping in, don't worry. This is not a sermon on Lord of the Rings. So all Tom Bombadillery aside... Let's get to our text for the day. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph. But before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to the public, disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do so, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All of this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him 
Jesus. Lord, as we're gathered here this morning, uh, we ask that your word would speak to us, uh, that the Christmas story would abound in our hearts, and that uh, we would realize that it is your light and your love that is also manifested through us today. Thank you so much for sending your son to us, and help us realize the greatness of this truth. Amen. All right, so if we're looking a little bit at the, the context, at the summary of the passage and uh, seeing uh, a way forward, something that we should know about Matthew, and this is just Matthew as a whole, not necessarily this particular piece, but it does apply to this particular piece, is that Matthew's gospel places a significant emphasis on prediction and fulfillment, predicting what is going to come and seeing that it is fulfilled in the gospels. Matthew wants his readers to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of Israel's scriptures, right? All of our Old Testament scriptures, Matthew's wanting to say, hey, this guy Jesus, he is the one you've been looking for. One commentator describes Matthew's style as putting forth, uh, quote, a training manual for prophets, end quote, because of the way Matthew immerses himself in significant prophetic texts and presents them to his readers in a kind of coaching-like fashion. For example, Matthew will include 13 what we might call authorial voiceovers to make sure his readers are tracking with him as he presents critical proof texts that link Israel's Messiah in the scriptures with Jesus of Nazareth, the king who has come to save Israel. So alongside of these voiceovers, Matthew uses what you would also call quotation formulas. Hopefully I'm not losing any of you guys just yet. He's using quotation formulas, which are stylistic elements of kind of repetition, uh, to introduce these key prophecies. We had one of them right here in Matthew, introducing kind of a, a bracketed Old, te- Old Testament text. You see that the prose is just kind of going and going and going, and then you see a little indent, and then there's a quotation there, and it kind of keeps on going. That's kind of what we're talking about. Matthew uses quite a few of these, especially compared to other authors. Notably, four of the uh, ten, there's ten total uh, formula quotations, appear in the birth and infancy narratives. So nearly half of these weighty hermeneutical devices, or if you follow along with the Bible Project podcast, you might prefer the term design patterns, are placed in the plot structure even before the baptism of Jesus. Baptism of Jesus is coming in chapter 3. right? So we're having a lot of front-loading on just these formulas. Now, this is well and interesting if you delight in analyzing text for fun, which would be me. But what does this uh, structure actually communicate communicate about or add to the meaning of the passage? So scholar uh, Richard Hayes writes, this clustering of fulfillment quotations near the beginning of the gospel conditions readers to expect that nearly everything in the story of Jesus will turn out to be the fulfillment of something prescripted by the prophets. Let me say it again. This is conditioning readers to expect nearly everything in the story of Jesus will turn out to be the fulfillment of something prescripted by the prophets. So if we take these keen insights from wise scholars and bring them a step down, we see an immense importance in the simple reality that Jesus Christ, our Savior, has come, right? 
The fact of his coming and putting on flesh is so significant, and it is such good news. It's possible sometimes uh, that we emphasize the cross to such a heavy extent that we forget about the whole life of Christ and how it's redemptive. His encounters on the road and in the church were redemptive. His meals with others were redemptive. His surprise encounters, such as when a fellow was lowered through the roof to meet him, or persons coming uh, alongside of him while he's walking through town. All of these bore the marks of redemption, including his birth. So the fact that Jesus come to us at all as one who emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, is something to rejoice about. We have God putting on flesh. You have so many people who are just trying to wrap their head about how this could even work, and somehow the God of the universe does this. And it's something so worth rejoicing to because it's such a great mystery to think about how the creator of the universe could be a creature living among us. Nevertheless, when we think about Christ's coming, the coming of our king, we think about the joy that follows, the good news of God putting the world to right. We think about the peace that comes from knowing that God is working when we know that our work and plans are not enough. And we think about the hope you haven't caught on that I'm talking about the candles. We think about the hope that is available to lift our spirits, to change our perspectives when we are caught in despair, giving us new narratives that we might envision. We think about the love that is possible through the renovation of human hearts when the bitter scales of pride are removed and infusion of tenderness and humility takes its place. So speaking about the glorious revolution, one author adds, Quote, the Messiah in Matthew's narrative world is precisely the one who saves his people from the consequences of their sins by closing the chapter of powerlessness and deprivation that began with a deportation to Babylon. We're talking about ancient Israel's exile narrative. So in other words, Matthew wants to show how Christ's entrance into human history, and I almost want to say here, into our human situation, brings about the end of Israel's exile. So Justin touched on this reality of exile last week in speaking about the genealogy. As we crossed over the midpoint of the Advent weeks, because there's kind of a structure to the Advent weeks, right? We transitioned from talking about the expectant desire for Christ's coming to talking about the murmurs and the mumblings and the rumblings of such a tremendous hope taking shape in human history. So in doing so, Justin talked about the ironic messiness of Christ's family tree. And if I could paraphrase just from my own listening ears, I'd say this. Even if the family tree seemed to need a good trimming by our standards, this tree isn't just functional but extremely fitting in the house of the Lord. Right? So if we're thinking about like trimming your tree for Christmas, this tree is exactly as it needs to be in the Lord's house. So our God enters into the messiness of the world to bring the world to right. And exiting this little rabbit hole on Matthew and where we've been during this Advent season, let's move on to focus on our passage, uh, which is Joseph's decision. Sound good? All right. Got a little bit of audience participation. I haven't lost you completely. All right. Now, when we come to our passage in Matthew 1.18, we see a bit of a problematic spectacle. 
We know that the lineage will be fulfilled at last through Mary and Joseph. However, Matthew seems to introduce a point of conflict to show a glimpse of the practical difficulty in bringing forth this prophecy in Mary and Joseph's Jewish world. So let me explain. Uh, When Mary conceives Jesus in her womb, she is not quite married to her husband. Similar to what we might uh, expect or or find today, the Jewish world had two major milestones in the marriage process. There was the engagement, or the betrothal, and then there was the marriage, right? So there's a public ceremony saying, hey, you guys are going to get married at some point, and then there was another ceremony that said, it's okay, it's actually happening. Uh, And sometimes there would be about the same year-long process, give or take. Again, not not an expert on ancient Jewish uh, marriages and everything, but we're, we're doing the best we can. Uh, so both moments carried unique and significant weight, and both took place in the form of a public ceremony. So there's likely a year between the engagement and the marriage event, and no relations would take place until the final union between the husband and the wife. But during this engagement process, they would still call one another husband and wife. Again, the, the term fiancé wouldn't really be used as we use it today. So when Matthew calls Mary and Joseph husband and wife before, you know, everything happens, and then the angel of the Lord says to Joseph uh, that he should take Mary as his wife, we're looking at these two promise-bearing figures during their own expectant and in-between moment. So in case you were wondering, this is why the text reads the way that it reads. So let's navigate to the next layer. In the If the first layer addresses this liminal and in-between space within Mary and Joseph's relationship, then the added layer addresses what happened when something, let's say, suspicious occurs during the engagement. You probably know what I'm talking about. So just a moment ago, I mentioned that the betrothal and the marriage moments carried immense weight and that these moments took place in the form of a public ceremony. So one commentator notes how betrothal was a far more binding step than our custom of engagement before marriage that we have today, especially since the penalty for fornication with one person while betrothed to another was death for both of the parties. Now let's think about the Mary and Joseph story. The text also prepares its readers for what could have happened in this situation by highlighting that Joseph was a just man, a man of character. It would be well within his world to move forward with the law as it was written in Deuteronomy and for Mary to endure the consequences of that Jewish law. But Joseph resolves to act differently. He acts counterculturally, at least he's intending to do so. He's going to choose to divorce Mary in secret, at least until the angel intervenes. So in other words, he's going to do this in the presence of chosen witnesses without public scandal. Right? He's going to avoid doing this ceremonial divorce thing. He's just going to like, hey, we're just going to break this off. We'll move, we'll move past it. So we can only wonder what might have been going through Joseph's mind during this process. How would he explain this to his family? What might be his reputation given the cultural expectations behind this marriage process? We know that Mary was approached by an angel in the other gospel accounts, ones that we don't receive from Matthew right here, but 
Matthew focuses on the angel's visitation to Joseph. So now it's like when we are resolved to act on a decision, when we have made up our minds, how much does it take to move away from this decision to change our course of direction? I, I would dare say it takes a lot. But the angel says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And he wakes up and he does just what the angel advises. A complete about face, going all in one direction and then pivoting and making a direct change. Sounds a little bit like repentance. But sometimes when you have some of these types of moments, right, how, how could you not? When you have God overseeing everything that's going on according to his plans, how could you not? One pastor has us imagine this. He says, was it really that easy? How much agonizing did Joseph do? Did he talk to others whom he trusted? Did he pray? Did he weigh the pros and the cons? Joseph was a Jew, a descendant of David, so he surely was steeped in both the scriptures and the culture of his time. And it would have been easy, easier to do what he resolved to do before he had the dream. It would have been easier to do what he resolved to do before he had the dream. And Mary, how patient Mary must have been while waiting to learn her fate. So as we know, Joseph obeys the angel. In a total change of plan, he takes Mary as his wife. And when fear is cast away, love enters into the picture. Love incarnate enters into the picture. Notice what the angel says, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife. Hmm. So given the way that the text is structured and seeing how the events take shape, moving from the problem to the proposed solution to the angel's intervention and the fulfillment promise to Joseph's action and the fulfillment that actually comes about, we see how God is at work in bringing everything together to accomplish his purposes. Moreover, the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in touching Mary's womb will foreshadow the revolutionary work of the Holy Spirit in the world that will change human hearts into vessels with the capacity to bear the life and the love of Christ in the world. The naming of Jesus is also significant uh, to the small piece of the text, Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Jesus' name comes from the Hebrew Yeshua, which is a shortened version of Joshua, Yehoshua, meaning Yahweh is salvation. So when the text says Emmanuel, Matthew is adding a level of meaning to the nature of the task that Jesus comes to perform. Jesus, who is salvation, is God with us bringing the presence of God to humankind and the salvation of his people. So now that we've gotten a little bit into the text, now we've uh, kind of explored a lot of some of these implications, let's try, to, let's try to hone it in a little bit. The story is exciting. It has many twists and turns. Uh, the the geneal genealogy kind of prefaces that things are going to work out, but then Matthew comes and leaves us in this kind of suspense-filled moment. How does this actually come about? How does Joseph become the legal, legal guardian, not the actual, or well, not the actual father, but the legal father of Jesus? 
So we're wondering how such an incredible and extraordinary event of the virgin birth took place during this time in history as well. We're reminded that God will accomplish his purposes as he intends. We're reminded that the identity of Jesus and the reason for his incarnation are oriented towards God's mission of love to transform human hearts. We're reminded, too, that the transformation of human hearts will occur as the king's coming ushers forward a revolution of love. So the 8th century uh, theologian Maximus Confessor writes about what is at stake in the Christmas event, highlighting the theme of the world being put to right. Uh, Jesus is bringing his people out of exile, and he's creating something new within their hearts that will impact the world in such a wonderful way. And he accomplishes this through the incarnation, abolishing the laws of nature as he engages himself with nature amid the things of nature in a way beyond nature. That's the way Maximus talks about it. Because Christ embraced our nature, he can fittingly reverse our nature, setting us on a new trajectory. And this image of rescue as Maximus comments on the nativity of Christ, reflects the images of redemption in uh, what will come up in some other accounts, the, uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and even the lost son. He says this, If, then, the good shepherd placed men like a sheep on his shoulders and returned him to the flock, and if the Lord and Savior, the wisdom and power of God the Father, through his incarnation, recovered man, who was like a lost silver coin stamped with the royal image. And if he received man back as a good and compassionate father receives a son upon his return and placed him in the ranks of the heavenly powers, then it is clear that Christ filled the world above by divinely bringing about the salvation of all. So the thing to remember this morning is uh, you bear the light of the world. The one who comes bearing the identity of love in the flesh bears these marks within each of us. As Christ is the light of the world, you and I function as lanterns in our world that bring the joy, the peace, the hope, and the love of Christ wherever we go. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 14 reveal that God is love and that those who know God bear his love. If we're looking at uh, verse 7, it says this, Beloved, let us love one another that because, or, beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, and whoever does not love, Love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so, beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. Not only, or no one has ever seen God, and if we love one another, God lives in us. and His love is perfected in us. 
But this we know, that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. The truth is this uh, is the, tr- the truth is one that we say so often, but perhaps we forget. When the pressures of life begin to mount and the seasons of life begin to change, but we are the light of Christ, who bear the love of Christ. And this light and love are for the life of the world. Let me, let, me, let me say it again, because we're talking about the revolution of love today that the coming of the King brings in. We say, but we are the light of Christ, who bear the love of Christ. And this light and this love are for the life of the world. So... <clears throat> This morning, we're going to respond in uh, a couple of ways. First, we're, uh, we, we've, we've lit the candle uh, of love already, uh, but we're going, we're going to light one final candle because we're not going to be joining next week, so I, I hope this is fine with you. I hope it's not sacrilege. We're going to go ahead and uh, light the Christ candle. Now, typically, we would wait until our, our Christmas service, uh, but we'll be with our families next week. As we light this candle, we want to remember that the truth that Christ has come to us in the flesh. God, creator of the universe, put on flesh. The word who was in the beginning, who's with God, who was God, is now with us as the word, putting on human flesh and making life possible for us. Life, life with God. The, the, the chasm that was there is now breached because of the word incarnate. We remember that he humbled himself, took on the form of the servant that we might have life and light abundantly in his magnificent love. Secondly, we want to celebrate Christ's salvific work that he brought through his whole life, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, so that you could redeem us from exile and set us on a path to bear his light as we love God, as we love neighbor, and as we walk in obedience. Before I, before I get to that part, because I'm, I'm saying we're about to get into communion, before I do that, I want to I offer you guys a challenge, because I know we're not going to be meeting next week, but we, we still need some sort of application. If, if you're not going anywhere, maybe, maybe you need something, maybe some... Uh, uh, activities for your family. Here, here's an idea. Here's an idea. So far, we've been kind of doing a little chronological. Uh, we've went through the first part of Matthew last week, or first part of Matthew 1 last week. We're doing the second part of Matthew 1 this week. It'd be really cool if you, just next, next Sunday, look at Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 gets a little bit more into the nativity of Jesus. It's where we have the wise men coming in. It's where we see Herod and all his drama of, oh man, there's going to be people trying to take my place. Anyways, it's a great story. But one of the things that I love in the passage is that these wise men, they come bearing the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And these would have been like kind of gifts that were natural to their trade. It would have been a part of who they are. Right? So their, their work was kind of their life and their identity as well. And when they come up to Jesus, they, they place 
these gifts in front of him. It, it's almost, uh, you could say, symbolic of them giving part of themselves to Christ. You see this upside down like revolution coming in. So part of my encouragement to you guys would be, uh, one, just read, read Matthew 2 next week. If, if you're doing a Christmas service somewhere else, that's great. This is still like a great thing to do and to meditate on. Uh, but, but think of like what it is at stake, what, what's going on when Christ comes to town. Something that you could also do is light your own uh, Christ candle at home. Think about, think about what it is like for Christ to be the light of the world, illuminating some dark spaces, right? Go into like a dark room, light a candle, and just see like how wonderful that is. Uh, if you don't have a candle, maybe some other light device, maybe you have a flashlight, all, all things are great. But yeah, try, try to do something that uh, brings you into that Christmas event, that, uh, the event that Christ is come and he's with us, and that things, even from his birth, are changing the world around him. All right, so this morning, we'll have the opportunity to join with one another as the bride of Christ who bears his light and his life at the table over here as we partake in the Lord's Supper. We remember that Christ's body was broken for us, symbolized by the breaking of the bread, and we remember that Christ's blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins which is symbolized with the juice that we dip the bread in. So when you come forward, come forward meditating, what John said earlier about meditating on some of the words today. Come forward meditating on the fact that Christ has come for an unforgettable purpose, to set us free from bondage and to fill you and I with his radical love so that the world might know that the light of the world through his lights in the world. So that the world might know the light of the world, Jesus Christ, through his lights in the world, you and I. All right. As you, uh, our ushers come forward, uh, we do have some gluten-free options up front. They'll dismiss you by rows. Go ahead and let, let part of this Christmas message sink in.